This is Paul speaking, and he was writing this from prison. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In some ways, the, the instruction here in uh, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4 is straightforward and clear. And so the message is a, a simple one. Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called to if we are in Christ. He calls us to walk with humility, gentleness, patience. He asks us to bear with one another, or he urges us to bear with one another. Uh, he urges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's fairly clear. That's pretty straightforward. Um, situating this instruction in the broader letter helps us to see the impact of what Paul is calling us to. Because this is a way of life that we enter into with our hearts. To be people who uh, pursue uh, gentleness and who are patient, who bear with one another, and who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that's something that comes from our hearts. That's not just a, a, a behavior that we sort of white-knuckle and force. It's something that should flow out of an enthusiasm and a commitment. To live this way, we need to be impacted by the things that Paul has already been talking about. These three verses um, and the early part of this fourth chapter of the letter are really a hinge. Paul is, is turning his attention from one way of writing to a second way of writing that's going to characterize most of the rest of his letter. In the first part of Ephesians, Paul has mostly been descriptive. He's wanted us to see things. He's wanted us to perceive realities that he has been changed by. Paul's been acting like a great tour guide or a passionate art curator or a great professor of literature, someone who's seen something, who knows something, who perceives something. He knows that it's beautiful. It's changed his life. And he's inviting us, he's standing with us and saying, will you look at this? Will you see this with me? In fact, he's praying that God will help us to see what he's seen. And so as he turns now in Ephesians chapter 4 to a more directive, pastoral, instructive posture, and he starts to talk about how we live in light of what we've seen, uh, it all hinges on everything that's come before. He's telling us, therefore, a prisoner, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So what's that calling? What, what is God up to? And I want to just take the time uh, to look at, make some brief comments, hopefully, on uh, these chapters that have led us to this point. And 
remind us of the things and just sort of the nature of this letter, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. The first thing that I want to just note with you is how enthusiastic and positive Paul is in the first chapter of Ephesians. If you read other letters uh, written by Paul, like his letter to the Galatians, where he very quickly is uh, rebuking them and he's frustrated with them, or his letter to the Corinthians, where he's dealing with issues that have gotten out of control in that church, Ephesians stands out as a letter where Paul is enthusiastic and positive right from the beginning. It's a very general kind of letter. It's not a letter that names anyone uh, that is reading it. Um, It's a letter that's sort of his general letter about the church and to the church. And he starts off so enthusiastic. Remember some of these phrases from Ephesians chapter 1. He talks about how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's speaking about the abundance, the overabundance of God's blessing to us. He speaks of God's glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, God's glorious grace, the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So Paul is incredibly excited about what God has done for us in Christ. And he uses the most uh, extreme and superlative and abundant kind of language to try to convey for us just how much good God has done for us in Christ, how gracious and kind he has been to us. Even in the first chapter of Ephesians, he uses a word that will come up again in chapter 3, the word mystery. And in Paul's use of this word, what he means is something that God has known from the beginning but has only been revealed fully in Paul's time and to people of the people of Ephesus, the believers there and elsewhere, who've seen this mystery, this thing that God has already known. In fact, Paul says that he's known it before the foundation of the world, but it's been kept hidden and only revealed in Paul's time through Christ. He describes the mystery in chapter 1 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul is incredibly enthusiastic about how God has lavished his grace in history and is doing something in Christ, a mystery which is only now being revealed to unite all things in him. And this, of course, has impacted Paul's readers, the first readers of this letter. He says, you're included in this because, in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I know you're a part of what God is doing, lavishing his grace 
adopting people into his family, the beginnings of his plan to unite all things in Christ, because you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of your inheritance. I know that you're a part of what God is doing because you've received the gift that I know, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit within me, and I recognize it also in you. Interestingly, the marks of this Holy Spirit are described in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. He says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. He knows that they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit because there's evidence of it, the evidence of faith in Jesus. They've understood that the centrality of Christ, that all the goodness that God wants to give to humanity is bound up in Jesus, and it's through him, and it's in the beloved. They've seen that, and they're loving all the saints. They have this affection towards others in the family of God. And so Paul's able to recognize you too have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Even at the beginning of, uh, well, then towards the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul famously prays. He knows that his readers and that believers understand that God has done something incredible in Christ. He knows that his readers and that all believers have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but his prayer is almost like for a, a greater, a more full expression of those realities in our lives. So he says, I have not I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. See that? He wants us to see something. He wants God to help us see something, that we would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So there are three things that Paul is praying for his readers. He's praying for us, and this is the, the prayer of Scripture for believers, that we would see the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Hope, to which he's called us, riches of his inheritance in the saints, which is, I hope we can see this morning, his way of saying that God is doing something so amazing in the church. It's so rich. It's so wise. It's so dynamic and brilliant and beautiful what God is doing in his treasured possession, his people. So I think the emphasis in this inheritance is God's inheritance, God's chosen inheritance, which are people that he's calling, that he's uniting, that he's adopting in Christ. And then, of course, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. As soon as Paul mentions his power, the power of God that is towards us, he starts to think about the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, uh, 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in, the age, in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses this picture and points to the truth that we are the body of Christ. He's gone from thinking about the power of God that is for us. That's made him want us to understand that that same power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and that now the church is related to Jesus as a body is related to a head. We are in Christ, which is the primary way that Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 1. We're in Christ. We're in the beloved. And then at the end of the chapter, this turn to a, an image, a truth, that we are the body of Christ. How are we in Christ? Well, we're in Christ as his body over which he is the head. And that leads him then in Ephesians chapter 2 to start to say that God has worked in our lives much as he worked in Jesus' life. Jesus was dead, and by God's power, he was made alive. And so at the beginning of Ephesians 2, he says, and you were dead. Do you see how your situation was just like the situation of Jesus after the cross? He was dead and needed to be made alive by God's power. You also were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we're the body of Christ, he's the head, and just as Jesus physically was made alive, so we have been made alive from sin into life in Christ. But not only have we been made alive, not only has God resolved our predicament of being dead in trespasses and sins, he's also changed our position. He, he's raised us up. This is Ephesians 2 verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here Paul, I think, is speaking to the hope that we have in Christ. The hope of new life and the hope of resurrection. He's using language that's very similar to what he says in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in Colossians, Paul says, Christ has been raised, so set your mind on things above where Christ is. Think about yourself, your circumstances, the world around you in light of the lordship of Jesus who's been exalted over all things. And that's our great hope, Paul says to the Colossians, that we will uh, 
be fully uh, like him who is our life when he appears in glory. So in Ephesians chapter 2, he says something very similar. We've been raised up with Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he wants us to see that we're the body of Christ. Just as a head is related to a body, so Jesus is related to us as his church. His resurrection is our resurrection. We've been brought from the deadness of sin to life in Christ. And even, Paul says, we've been raised with Christ. Our defining position, the great truth over our lives, is the resurrection of Jesus, that he is Lord and King. And that changes the way that we see ourselves. And it gives us hope for the future. Thinking further about this truth that we are the body of Christ, is what leads Paul then to start talking about unity between Gentiles and Jews. So because we are the body of Christ, we've been made alive, we've been raised with Christ, but we've also been made one with one another. He says to uh, his readers who are Gentiles in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is the circum called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, because you're part of the body of Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility, and so on. So because we are the body of Christ, because he is our head, his resurrection is our resurrection. His ascension changes who we are and how we look at ourselves and the world around us. And his one body reality unites us, unites Jew to Gentile, and unites people of all cultures, tribes, nations, tongues, people. It's now a global work that God is doing to unite all people in Christ. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 3 to pick up again on this idea of mystery, and he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, verse 6. So in the first part of Ephesians, Paul says the mystery is that God is going to bring all things together in Christ. But the beginning of that mystery, the outworking of that mystery, starts in the church where Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So God has a great plan set before the foundation of the world to lavish his grace on people through Christ, to adopt them through Christ into his family as daughters and sons. And this is just the beginning of what God intends to do to unite all things in Christ. He's made us the body of Christ, 
when we trust in him. He becomes our head, we become his body, which means that his resurrection is our resurrection. We move from the deadness of sin to life in Christ. His ascension to the right hand of God gives us boldness as God's children to enter into his presence and call God our Father, just as Jesus does, the Son of God. His power is what unites us as brothers and sisters in the body, no matter what our background is. There's no there's nothing about gender or ethnicity or language or socioeconomic status or education. There's nothing about culture that can prevent God from making us one in Christ because he's made us the body of Christ and the body of Christ is one. So his purpose to unite all things in Christ is evident in history first as he unites all kinds of different people together in the church. He says it this way in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the incredible riches of his inheritance in the, in the saints, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Remember that in Ephesians 1, Paul says that Jesus has been raised above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And now in Ephesians 3, he says that the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Jesus has a position given by God, a name that is above every name, and that is being demonstrated it's being operationalized it's being shown to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places through the church the position of jesus the authority of jesus the victory of jesus is being demonstrated through the church and in particular the the fact that god is not choosing one people he's choosing all people he's choosing any person who is in christ and there's now no barrier there is one body that is being united by the Spirit in Christ, and God is putting that on display, saying, do you see the power of what I have accomplished through the death of my son Jesus that now no one is separated from being included in the body of Christ? There's nothing about your background. There's nothing about sin. There's nothing, nothing about your ethnicity or status that can prevent God from including you into the body of Christ, which is completely different from how people until this time had understood God was going to work. So now his manifold wisdom is on display in the heavenly places. And so Paul uh, prays again, and this is where we were Last week, and um, in, as Albert shared a message uh, from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, this leads Paul to pray for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
See how these themes are just recurring and cascading through the letter. There's something glorious that God has done. There's a riches, the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Will you just see by God's power the wonder of what God has done in Christ? that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and light, length and height and depth. And he doesn't even give an object to that. He's just saying, God has done something so immense. Apply it to his love. His love is measureless. His power is measureless. His grace is measureless. His mercy is measureless. And if God can get a hold of our hearts and allow us the, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened that we would see this measurelessness of what God has done to know the love and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I think the, the sense is here that we would experience something that we would never be able to fully articulate. We can't put it into words, but we would know it experientially, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly, that has this, who is the source of immeasurable power, far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within in us, to him be the glory, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So you see that, that God's purpose is to glorify his son, Jesus, as the one who saves the world, and that there's a special emphasis on the church, that the church is what God is putting on display to show his manifold wisdom and to exalt his son, Jesus, that people would see that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name when they look to the church and see what God is accomplishing to unite people regardless of background, regardless of the differences that would easily divide us, as he unites us in the church, Jesus is the one who gets the glory. So then we finally come, and I only want to make brief comment because it's a very simple directive. He says, therefore, because of what God has done for us, because of his generosity towards us, because of the beauty of what Jesus has done, because we've been brought from life to death just as Jesus was raised, because we've been raised and seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms, because God is uniting people from all backgrounds into his body, the church, because he's putting the church on display before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so that they'll see his manifold wisdom. I urge you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been given the greatest privilege. God has called you, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and he's appealing to us this morning. Scripture's appealing to us this morning. You've been called, and he's saying, live a life worthy. Be a part of displaying the manifold wisdom of God in the spiritual realms. How? by showing humility and gentleness and patience, by bearing with one another in love, 
by showing eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's an interesting I kind of turn. Like, the first verse of Ephesians chapter 4, to me, sounds like it might be leading somewhere different. When someone says, you know, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, to me that sounds a little bit like a general in uh, the trenches. Okay, you know, now's the moment, boys. We're going to go over the hill. Like, live up to the expectations of our country. Let's get out there. Or maybe a coach in the locker room on a Sunday of an NFL game saying, now's the moment. Like, we're heading to the, for the Super Bowl. You can imagine someone saying, live, play worthy of the calling. You know, you have the unique, distinct privilege of representing this storied, team on the field this Sunday at the Super Bowl. So live up to it. And you might expect that in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, that Paul would be on the offensive, like, let's get out there. Let's take on the enemy. That he might jump to the way he speaks in Ephesians chapter 6. Our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. Let's go down, take down Satan. God's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But instead, he says, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's one thing to galvanize people by pointing to an enemy and saying, there's this great threat out there. Let's take it on. All those people who aren't part of who we are, they're bad, they're scary, they're evil. So let's stick together and let's fight. But Paul is doing something very different here. He's turning us inwards towards one another and saying the way that we're going to live up to our calling is not by sorting out anybody else's problems. It's by working on the relational, the day-by-day, simple things of getting along. Suddenly, humility matters so that Jesus can display, so that God can display his manifold wisdom in the heavenly places. Whether you're humble actually makes a difference to whether you're recognizing that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name and whether you're participating in line with God's great purpose to unite all things in Christ. If you're gentle, that's a way of showing that you know what God is up to in history, that the great work that he's doing is pouring out his grace, bringing people into a family in Jesus, and putting us on display in the heavenly places to say, look at what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. When you're patient, when you bear with one another in love, these are the meaningful, noble, powerful actions of the church that matter on a cosmic level. They're not just on display for our neighbors. They're not just on display for the city of Toronto. It doesn't matter whether the government of Canada recognizes what we're doing. God says the spiritual forces in the heavenly places are watching what God is doing in his church to unite people in Christ. 
These words in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 2, and I'll end with with this, um, should sound a little bit familiar because Paul talks this way in different places. He says that we're to live, walk uh, in a manner worthy of our calling, and he says humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in love, maintaining the bond of peace. Well, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. And some of those fruit are love and peace and patience and gentleness. There are nine in all, but four of them are repeated here as Paul describes living in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. In 1 Corinthians 13, where he's writing to a church that thinks that if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, there'll be all these sign evidences. He says the the most excellent way to know that the Holy Spirit has control of your life is not the tongues you use. It's not these sort of spectacular gifts. It's love, which he describes as patient, not boastful, not arrogant, Uh, He says that love bears all things, the same language that he uses here where he says, bear with one another in love. So the last comment I want to make is that verse 2 of Ephesians 4 is a description of what the Holy Spirit brings about in our lives. These are attitudes which Paul isn't imposing on us uh, in the sense of this is work which you alone must do. He's asking us, he's urging us to allow the Holy Spirit to have full control of our lives so that this fruit of the Spirit, so that this evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives that he speaks about in Galatians and in Corinthians and here in Ephesians would be there. We will be humble and gentle and patient We will bear with one another in love. We will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace to the extent that the Holy Spirit has control of our minds and hearts, which is why Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the incredible greatness of his power, toward us to who believe and also his prayer in Ephesians 3 are so important because as the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our lives, he shows us things about God and Jesus and the church, which then produce these attitudes of humility and gentleness and patience. We begin to bear with one another in love because we recognize the greatness of what God is doing by bringing us together and by inviting us with the help of the Holy Spirit, to work out those things that are challenging and difficult as we live out real lives with one another in the church. So, um, I don't know how to end this. Uh, it excites me what God uh, shows us in, these, uh, in Ephesians. I think it's my favorite uh, book of the Bible. It's certainly um, up there. And uh, I love how uh, Paul shows us here that what we see about what God has done in Christ changes the way we live. 
And so that's our prayer. That's my prayer. Let me just pray, I guess, and uh, I think we're going to respond in song. So, Father, thank you that you have done something incredibly gracious and abundantly kind for us in Christ, that you have uh, made us his body when we trust in him, that together we have been brought from death to life, we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Uh, Lord, we are his body because no matter what might divide us, you have made us one in Christ. And Lord, thank you that we're encouraged this morning to remember that what you're doing in the church matters on a cosmic level. It's been your plan before the foundation of the world to unite all things in Christ. And you're beginning to show in history the reality of the power of Jesus uh, to unite things by uniting people in your church. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that as we work out our relationships with each other, we're doing something that matters on an eternal level. It's part of your great plan. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir us to live lives worthy of the calling with which we've been called that you would fill us with your spirit so that things like humility and patience and gentleness and bearing with one another and eagerness to maintain unity would characterize us as a church, as a local congregation, and even, Lord, in the city of Toronto and beyond, that your church in different congregations would be stirred by your spirit uh, to live this way with one another. So we pray all of this because you deserve the glory, Jesus. Amen.